This is episode number 307, How to Turn Anxiety into Your Superpower, with Adam Hill. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohit, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your false potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a few quick announcements. The first announcement that I wanted to make is an invitation to all of our listeners to our upcoming weekly conversation called Survive to Thrive, Live the Story You Create. What this is, is a series of conversations that take place every single Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, where we explore the connection between one's personal narrative and the topics of grief, gratitude, appreciation, and many other topics. If you feel that this is of interest to you, please consider joining us live either through Facebook or LinkedIn on any given Tuesday or checking out our YouTube channel where you'll be able to find the archive of all the previous conversations as well as ways that you can contribute to each and every single one of them. The second announcement that I wanted to make is in regard to our show and that is if our show has had any form of impact in your life, please consider supporting our work by either making a contribution through our website at overcomingodds.today or leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Now, let's get back to the show. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really honored to be here. I appreciate you having me. No, thank you. Thanks for joining me. And before we actually start off, I, I did have one question. Extra life on your shirt. Could you explain a little bit? Because it sounds like that name carries quite the the meaning as well as significance behind it. It does. Uh, you know, I, I, as many kids have, I started in, I'm an eighties child. So I grew up playing Nintendo and all of the, all of the video games. And, and so I grew up with this feeling of how you level up your, your life. You know, you start off with a wooden sword, you start off with a wooden shield with these games, and then you, you start growing and, and achieving and becoming bigger and stronger as you, as you level up. And I found that that applied to my life later on, much, much later on after, you know, I had some personal struggles and I realized that all of us, you know, if, if we can learn to overcome and transcend some of the challenges that we have, or some of the fears or some of the, some of the limitations perceived or otherwise, you know, we can start to level up our own lives and, and start to live our extra life. So it's something that I've kind of adopted as kind of my theme for the life is that whatever life I'm living now is my extra life. Mm -hmm. I've always been fascinated by, not always, but in the recent years in regard to the clothing people wear and the symbols, because I find that in my case, I've literally gotten rid of half of the wardrobe. Yeah, <laughs> I, only wear I only wear things at this point that I can somewhat relate to or that I feel like I have that I can project meaning onto like, you know, shirts, the companies that I would start or businesses that I was a part of, or some of my friends, if they have any sort of apparel, but some of the other brands, I just, I don't know. I, I think when I was younger, yes, I would throw on a shirt, pair of sneakers and not question it. But now it, it's, it's kind of like a mindset shift, you know, I'm putting those things on and I'm like, wait, 
do I actually support what it is that I just put on? Mm-hmm. It, it, it is. And, and I feel the same, same way. And mm-hmm. I, I hadn't thought about it until you just mentioned it, but when we put on certain clothing yeah. or when I put on certain clothing, I do feel more empowered. And that's why I do. I mean, I tend to wear these shirts a lot, not just because, you know, they, they represent my brand, but because I do feel that way. I feel that sense of empowerment when I'm wearing it. So you're absolutely right. Do you feel like you're at a point where you fully embraced your brand and what you do and what you stand for? I, I have. Yeah, I, I have. And I think that the challenge that I've had is, is more so how do I, how do I approach it? Do I approach it from, from a fitness angle or do I approach mm-hmm. it from just a, a general mental health angle? Because both I'm very passionate about and both I think are things that people generally are challenged by, especially mm-hmm. now there's, there's such a, uh, a such, such a big, uh, you know, mental health is so in our face and we're, and we're struggling so much with how to, how to handle that. And for me personally, that's, you know, that's where my journey began and fitness was, was just kind of one of those ways that I was able to feel empowered and continue to level up my life. When did that click for you? Because I, I know for me, I'm still in the early stages of prioritizing my mental health and physical well-being. but I'm curious in your life, what had happened that made you realize that, Hey, these two maybe should not be at the bottom of the list, but at the top. Was there a specific event or something like that that happened in your life that made you reprioritize your life to begin with? Yes. Uh, and it started with the anxiety, the mental health part, because uh, I, when I grew up, there, there wasn't a lot of talk around mental health, uh, you know, depression, anxiety. There still isn't. Yeah, there's still. Fortunately, I think with podcasts and, and things like this, these kinds of discussions, it's, it's becoming, but it, it, you're right, it's still not there. It's, it's still... I mean, we're still uh, trending toward harder, more challenging times for people with mental health issues. And, uh, and so we haven't had that. We didn't have those discussions. I didn't really know that I, I had what I had. So I grew up kind of a worried kid. I just thought I was a spaz. I thought I didn't have any friends because I just was weird or, or what have you. I didn't realize things like social anxiety existed or, you know, general anxiety or panic attacks. And I ended up having my first panic attack. So the first time I actually realized that something was, was really wrong, I had my first panic attack in college when I was in my early 20s. And it was just so paralyzing, so debilitating, so, uh, you know, I, that I didn't, I didn't know what was happening to me. I legitimately thought I was going to die. And, and it was just so, I, it's hard to describe the amount of fear that I had. I was uh, simply studying for an organic chemistry examination, which of course would, would cause panic for a lot of people, but <laughs> myself included. <laughs> yeah. We <laughs> should have learned that just stop with the organic chemistry. No, but I, I, it just immediately came into my head that, that I was, I was sick, that I was, you know, that I was, that I had this life-threatening disease and I, I collapsed on the floor, just completely paralyzed. Uh, and from that moment on, you know, I, so I went and got checked out by the doctor and, you know, they said, there's nothing wrong with you. You're fine. And so that was that immediate relief. Okay. Thank goodness. But you know, that, that was a surface level relief because it just came back in another form. And the next time, like I thought, oh my gosh, now I have cancer. And it was just this weird hypochondria ring of panic that I kept having over and over again. And it was all based around these irrational fears that shouldn't have existed that, that, you know, nobody else thinks about. And so I thought that I was somehow 
strange for having those. So I didn't tell anybody about it, but I leaned more into what I had at the time as a solution, which was alcohol. And for me that immediately numbed the pain. It was like a, it was like a, a friend that was just immediately comforting me and telling me that everything was all right. And my mind would just calm. And then I would gain that liquid confidence. And I'd say, yeah, you're crazy. Just don't even think about that. Now everything's good. Now I feel good. And for a while that worked for a while, it was fun for a while. It was, it, it worked fine. Um, but as so happens with alcohol over time, it became problematic. And that, that numbing of the pain became blackouts. It became, you know, getting into trouble. It became getting arrested and, and those kinds of things weren't consistent with what me like deep inside what my values are. And so now I had a shift in the shame and all of this and all of these other stuff on top of the anxiety. So ultimately, the immediate solution that I was trying to implement was only numbing the pain at the instant, but it was making the anxiety and, the, and, and that disorder worse. So it was just causing all of this, all of this turmoil in my mind. And so for a decade, I was going through that whole whole cycle of, of, you know, torment and, and, and everything until it really came to a head when, um, yeah, over time I would set rules for myself. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to drink before 5 PM because then I would be a real alcoholic or, or I'm not going to drink, you know, on work nights because I need to function in the morning. And, and ultimately I would break all of those rules. Uh, but there was one rule that I would never ever break because I just so hated people that would do this. And that was drinking and driving. I never was going to be one of those people. And I, and I, I always lived up to that rule for, for a long period of time until, until I didn't, until I finally broke that rule. And I ended up uh, getting into a DUI accident. And um, fortunately no one was hurt. No one was killed. And, you know, you know, by grace, that was the case. Um, but I was arrested I was, uh, uh, you know, I went into jail that night and I was in a blackout. So I didn't remember what happened. So I was just left to think of like, oh my gosh, what did I do? And that was the first moment that I had, had that deep feeling of I, my life is absolutely out of control. I cannot manage my anxiety. I cannot, uh, I can't, I can't drink. I can't, um, I can't live my life like a normal person would, would live. And I'm a danger, not just to myself, which I would have been fine with, but I'm a danger to other people. And that was where I just, I had that, that moment of, of, I have two choices here. I can either end it, end it all, or, you know, just end, end my life, or I can, or I can really lean into getting help and make that the first priority in my life. Um, and so that, that mental health aspect became just, it, it, it became a necessity for me to live on this planet. And so going into recovery and, and, and getting, getting healthy, that was really the first step in, in that transformation. So acknowledging that, that I had to change, otherwise I just couldn't, I, I would either end up in jail or, or dead. How, how much of a reality did, did the first choice become in ending your life completely? It, it, uh, fortunately, it, it was really one thing that I wrestled with only for that night uh, while I was in, in jail, because I knew I, I had I had had it already. The seed was planted earlier on that there was help out there. There were programs that of sobriety that could help. I had, but I had always on on the guise of this idea that I 
didn't have time to do it because I had a family or, or I had, yeah. uh, you know, other responsibilities. I had a job. How could I support my family if I was focusing 100% on my recovery? That's so selfish to, to focus on, on, on my own, on myself when my family needs me. When in reality, I was no good to my family at that point anyway, but that's just the, the thing. But at this point, I, but when I was in jail, I realized that I, I couldn't, um, that I, I realized quickly that that other option was the first option I should try mm-hmm. because getting help is, is immediately, um, that, and I, and, you know, by the way, uh, for anyone that's struggling with that choice, that choice is very real and very, very scary. And, and just, I, I want everybody to know that the miracle that can happen beyond, you know, the pain that's happening now mm-hmm. is so beautiful, regardless of whatever challenges that, that, that you're being faced. It may feel incredibly hopeless right now, but trust me from where I came from in that moment of mm-hmm. complete hopelessness, that the beauty that can exist beyond that is, is so amazing and so worth it to stick around and to stay here. It's so interesting that you bring up this part of the your lived experience because the guest prior was actually a, a, one of my best friends. Him and I have been friends for going on to 17 years. And he just had a, I think he just had his three-year anniversary of oh, being fantastic. sober. Mm-hmm. And, and for him, very similar experiences, not the same events, but there were times where he shared that it, it became a challenge to mm-hmm. actually be able to control it. And I think the other thing that I've learned through my experience as it relates to anxiety and different ways that people cope with it, when I was in college in particular, I remember a lot of my friends who had experienced social anxiety, the first mechanism they would go to was alcohol. Mm-hmm. It was, for them, it was the easiest option because then it gives you a boost of confidence. It makes you courageous. I, I mean, it also... For me, sometimes it made me more reckless because I wasn't able to process and make decisions the same exact way when I didn't have those things. So I, I think it's a real thing, and it's probably a real thing for many people. And and what, the other thing that I'm curious in you sharing all this is do you think it ever goes away? Do you think anxiety ever goes away, or does it simply just transform from one shape into the next? No, it absolutely doesn't go away. And I, I would I would even say it would be dangerous if it did go away. Because mm. I think that anxiety, though, though some of us have elevated levels of anxiety, and especially now where we're so overstimulated with things like social media and the news and everything is in our face, we're not conditioned as humans. We didn't evolve to, to realize this level of stimulus. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, anxiety is, is in our face, but those, that fear, that response is, is necessary. I mean, you think about things like, uh, things, things that produce that anxiety response. Like if I'm, if I'm in a, uh, a situation where, you know, you know, I'm in, I'm in a situation of danger. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in the, I'm, I'm in, in the wilderness and a, there's a bear out there and that anxiety, it keeps my senses heightened. It, it's, it keeps those things, you know, readily available to me. So it's, so it's a necessary thing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise we would all be, you know, we wouldn't have that that governor on us to prevent us from doing things that put us in significant Hmm. danger. Mm -hmm. But yeah, for those of us who have it as this elevated thing, uh, we just have to recognize that that's, that's part of it. And it's okay to feel that. And -hmm. sometimes it's irrational if we put that name to it and we, and we, instead of trying to suppress it and numb it or do anything like that or, or push it down, 
which is which is only harming us more. We we really need to name it. We need to put a name on it and say that we're feeling it and it's okay to feel it. And then, you know, lean into the tools that we have to work through it. And even even look at some of those things that we feel and recognize them for what they are, which are superpowers. Because that that was one big shift for me. When when I first got when I first got sober, you know, miraculously, when I was working through the program of recovery, it 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 helped. Did you do a, a twelve? Did you do a twelve step? I did, yeah. So I went through Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know that there's a lot of different ways mm-hmm. to to get sober, but uh, and I don't want to promote any one of them. But that that was the one that really worked for me. Mm-hmm. And the reason it worked was because a it was a framework, and b it was a community of people that that had success with it. So ultimately, it, it just involves me letting go and just trusting the process and and accepting you know whatever whatever place I was in at that moment and taking it one day at a time. And those very same steps helped me to, to really come to terms with my anxiety. So I really used a lot of that to, I, I realized that, you know, my anxiety level was going down when I practiced those steps, when I, you know, when I really just gave, like, let things go, or when I, you know, tried to lean into health. So after about a year of sobriety, I started leaning into that kind of stuff more and, and, and trying to determine, like taking it even a step farther of, of how can I really look at it where the benefits of anxiety can be of, of living with this. Mm. I don't, I know that, you know, I can't suppress it. I can't push it out. I can't, you know, put it down, but I, and I have to live with some of these things. So what are the benefits? And, you know, I realized that, well, I, I really care a lot what people think about me. I mean, that's one of the things about anxiety. It's like, you're very self-aware and you just, you worry about what, you know, what you're presenting to people and, and you, you tend to obsess about that. But, but that too can be interpreted as, okay, well, I'm, I can also be compassionate and I can push that outward and, and try and mm. be more giving and understand what people need. Or if I, if I'm obsessive, I have an obsessive personality. It's why I'm an alcoholic. I, I have a bit of those, you know, OCD tendencies, but where can I, that benefit me? Well, that, that's what really got me in, into, you know, the obsessive focus that's required to become an elite triathlete. Those kinds of things are superpowers that come from anxiety for me. And each each one of us, I think, when we look at our fears, can take those fears and turn them on our head and, and reframe those. Mm. When was your last drink, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, 10 years ago, as of January 21st. Wow. So I was in jail on January 21st of 2012. And, and what is, I've been trying to understand this, and this is a question that I wish I had asked a friend of, uh, a friend of mine when the anniversary approaches, what, what's that like? Is it just like any other day or is that day truly different from the rest? More and more, it's like, it's, it's, as I approach it, it's more like every other day because I tend to almost, and I know this is bad and I, I know a lot of people focus on, you know, like here comes the anniversary, but more and more, I even just kind of forget that there's an anniversary coming. Mm. And I live, I live every day and I just, I, I wake up and the first thing I, I pray for is that, that I, I am grateful that I'm sober and able to be of more service today than I was, you know, however long ago it was. But mm-hmm. once I get to the date, you know, I have my wife who's wonderful and who's been so supportive through it to remind me of it. And, you know, other people who have, who have supported me through it to remind me of that. And it's, so it's, it's a wonderful day. It feels like a, a birthday because it's just, it, it was the beginning of that, of that, next life that extra life that i that Birth i talked about the new chapter yeah 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Every day I'm living on that, that additional time, which I, which is just grace for me now. You know, that's a very interesting topic of its own <clears throat> approaching life as if it is your, or approaching every day as if it is your last. And if I'm being fully transparent, I can't say that I'm there. I still choose to assume that tomorrow is going to come and next week's going to come and next year is going to come when the reality of the matter is none of that's guaranteed, not even the next breath. And I've read numerous books. One book in particular I read a couple of weeks ago by Michael Senior called The Surrender Experiment. And one of the things that he talks about in there is this concept of breathing and how the next moment nor the next breath is guaranteed. And I remember hitting rewind however many times on it just to process it more and more. And I've really begun to understand how precious it is to be alive and how much of an opportunity it truly is. Not only the chances that you and I were able to be alive, right? Out of all the, all the possible selves that simply didn't make it, but also the opportunity to experience it. And I'm really curious from your lens. I know for me, one way that I try and embrace this is I really try and express gratitude. And the other thing that I live by is this mantra of do the next right thing. I genuinely believe that everyone knows what that next right thing is. I think it's just for a variety of reasons. Some or maybe all of us don't choose to do it from time to time, myself included. And I'm wondering from your lens, how do you fully embrace that concept? Have you fully embraced that concept that every moment could be your last? Yeah, it's impossible I, for us to do as humans. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know if it's possible. I know that I haven't achieved it either. I, mm. you know, I, I get caught up so much in the future tripping of like, what do I want to be ten years from now? And I think there's <laughs> there's good goodness in that. I mean, there's planning and goal setting is good, mm. but I notice that I spend too much of my time there. And that's always been my problem. And I think that's where anxiety lives is, is really in the future, that future that's uncertain that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And why a lot of us experience that anxiety is because of things that haven't happened yet. Of course, there's, there's that rational fear of the things and that, that anxiety that we have of things that are happening now, but that uncertainty of, of, of the future and, and looking, looking forward and, and doing that, I still struggle with that you know, today. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I try to, what I, what I try to do at least, at, and, and I think this, this helps me mm -hmm. and it doesn't take it away. And I don't think we can ever really take it away, but one, one thing I'll say is an overarching thing for, for everybody who experiences this is, is, and that helps me is, is not to be judgmental about it, not to, not to judge ourselves for doing, having that future tripping or, or not considering this day as our last, because we are human and we have to embrace those kinds of imperfections. Because if we were all, if, if we were perfect in that regard, then yeah. life wouldn't be as fulfilling. So acknowledging that it's okay to, and, and, and at least not being judgmental about it, just trying to shift our focus back to it, that eliminates the shame part of it. Mm. And then, you know, taking, taking time at the beginning of the day to really uh, prime myself has been one thing that, that, that I, I do not negotiate with. I just, every morning I have to do my breathing exercises and then, you know, my, my meditation to help bring me present, my prayer and all that stuff to make sure that I'm, I'm at least for that moment in time, practicing presence. And, uh, and that helps me throughout the day, uh, mm -hmm. to at least kind of bring it back a little bit. Does breath work work for you? 
For me, yes. Yeah. I I've adopted the Wim Hof method, yeah. which I'm, yeah, it, which is, that's been a life changer for me. I've, I've been doing that every single day for about five years now. Did and you do one of his courses? I, I did. I did the, one of the early ones, but it's been a while since I've been, oh, okay. I, I haven't done any of the ones that are in person or anything like that, but that mm-hmm. would be a bucket list item for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been wanting to try one of his. I, I did a, I, I do this thing still not consistently, but on most Sundays, one of the people who is a certified instructor, I think using his method, mm-hmm. he offers the zoom class where people can just join in. And, and for me, the times that I have done it, it's incredible. I was, I'll be honest, at first I was a skeptic. I was very skeptical about the process. And then slowly I realized that I myself didn't know how to breathe. I experienced a lot of shortness of breath. I think a lot of it has to do due to my early childhood trauma, as well as all the other adversities that I faced where I'm constantly, constantly in survival mode. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized through those classes, how rare it is for me to actually take full breaths. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 and I, I, I have that problem too, where, you know, and, and that, that, that's one of, that's the best free anxiety relief that you can get is breath. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's, it's free and it's, it's nearly immediate. I mean, it takes a few breaths to really get that calmed down, but if you can just focus on taking those deep breaths all the way into your belly, just filling your lungs, I mean, oxygen, it, it, it is, it is such a, it is such a game changer, but none of us really do that. Yeah. We find that even when we get anxious, start, we tense up and we start breathing more shallow. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I, that, that's a, that happens to me all the time. Um, yeah. So, uh, so breath work is, is one of the best defenses against it in the immediate moment. So for you, that's literally non-negotiable. Yes. Yeah. First thing in the morning, that's the first thing I do is I do 40, uh, four rounds of 40 breaths from the Wim Hof method. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I found that that particular method is a great way. To, and, and even in the moment, if I'm having a panic attack, which I still have from time to time, mm-hmm. you know, doing that, doing that breath work, it helps bring me back and center me and bring me back into the present and, and kind of reduce that, that panic attack. It, it really does work effectively. What's the difference now between the panic attacks that you experienced compared to, let's say, five or 10 years ago? I would say that, that the primary difference is knowing what they are. Mm. And, and, and that's an important point because they were so amplified by this uncertainty of what it was. Well, mm-hmm. the uncertainty of what it was, but the certainty that what it was was going to harm me. And now that I know that they're not going to harm me, that it's just a feeling that the dread or the, or that the absolute dread that I I know everybody who's had a panic attack knows that feeling and, and the uncertainty and the butterflies and, and, and everything, the shortness of breath that it is, it is just a reaction and it's not going to hurt me. I'm not, I'm not dying in that time. It may feel like I am, but I know that that's, that it's not going to harm me. So now the next step is just take those breaths and try and try and bring it back. And I don't always do so well with that. Sometimes I, I lean into that panic or that anxiety and it it doesn't work, but, but you know, that that's, that's human. And if I could look back on those times, I can not feel shame about it. Now I don't have to lean into drinking, which is, that's a miracle to me. That's a miracle every day. I don't have to lean into a drink to, to calm it down. I would say I've been through more, uh, more personal challenge, uh, 
when I've been sober than I, than I was drunk, but I've been able to handle it because right. I've been sober. Yeah. Hmm. Do you find that in, in your case, you, you get more anxious about certain things over the others? And the, the only reason why I bring that up is I find that whenever I'm put in situations where I'm talking about, for example, my work or the project I'm working on or speaking on stage, I find that the level of anxiety becomes increasingly more than if I were to speak on behalf of someone or tell a story about someone else other than myself. Mm. And I wonder, is there a connection between anxiety and the relationship that has to myself or whoever the person that's talking about it? Because I find it almost every time, almost every time I'll get on stage and I'll sh- I can share the same exact story. Mm-hmm. But the difference being if I choose to share that story about someone else or if I share that story about myself, immediately stumbling upon words, stress level goes through the roof, the breathing increases. And I've just always been curious, is there a correlation in, in that? Yeah, I, I, for me, I can only speak for myself because I, I, I just I genuinely believe that it manifests differently for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, I'll say, after listening to your TED talk, it does not come across that way. You did amazing <laughs> with that. So that was great. Um, but you didn't see the 15 minutes before I stepped onto the stage. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> there is a reason why it's called the green room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I and, and I, I feel I, I get the same way before I speak, even become, before coming on this show. There's like, you know, that mm-hmm. first, that 10 minutes before where it's like, okay, what's going to wrong? Am I, I say something wrong? Am I going to offend the host? You know, what's going to happen? But you know, I think um, for me personally, the the strange thing about it is that I will, uh, of course, I talk about future tripping. So my anxiety tends to live in the future. So when I'm thinking about a show that I'm about to do or a meeting mm-hmm. that I'm about to have or something like that, I get anxiety about the worst case scenario that'll happen in it. But when I start, when I start being vulnerable or honest or open and just try and share, you know, share as openly as I can. I notice that that's, that the anxiety calm, that it goes away. It's, that's almost one of another, um, another tool or another piece in my arsenal against anxiety is, is that honesty, that openness, is that vulnerability. Because then I realize that the worst case scenarios don't necessarily happen. I mean, the worst things that can happen is, is, you know, you may think that I'm, I'm crazy, or you may think that mm-hmm. I'm, I'm full of it or whatever, but that that's really it then you know and and then i realize okay well you know now it's 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 okay because i got it out there so that's why i mean instead of keeping my story anonymous like many people that helps a lot of people to to kind of maintain that anonymity when it comes to alcoholism and 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 working in that community for me it helps me and that's maybe the selfish aspect of it to be open about it and that actually even kind of kind of takes it takes it down a notch but i noticed that when i'm in the moment when I'm thinking about the future impacts of things that I'm, I'm afraid of, that's where the anxiety is. But when I'm, when I'm actually in them, when I'm in the challenge, when I'm working through it, I'm, it's, it's usually a little better. Was that a hard decision to put your name to what you're doing instead of choosing to be anonymous? It, it was. Uh, and, and I think the reason it was, was rooted in the fact that, you know, I was conditioned through those programs to that, that in, anonymity was, Mm -hmm. was a key concept about it, which is great. But then I realized that, you know, owning my story was important and that, that, you know, becoming who it was. But I think that I was always afraid of what people would have thought about me 
uh, you know, for sharing this, this, these things that, you know, that, that are, that are shameful, you know, that, that, you know, getting a DUI, getting in an accident, you know, putting other people at risk is, that's a shameful thing. And it's, it's even hard for me to talk about now, but, but what I realize is that for, for anybody that, that may look differently or, or look poorly upon that on, on me is from a, from a character standpoint. And I understand that, but that there are people out there that that will help to hopefully prevent them from doing that. And that is, that's the way that I believe that I can, I can contribute to that 12th step, at least to, to help people to avoid that, to, to know that there is another way. And, and mm-hmm. I, and I hope that, and, and to offer hope to people that are feeling hopeless in, in whatever way that they can, uh, that far outweighs whatever, you know, you know, feeling of anxiety I might have about mm-hmm. having to share it. And, uh, and so that, that's, that's important to me. I know for me, it was a big step in being able to put my name behind all of it. And I think one of the reasons why it was a big step was because I was so concerned with what other people thought of me. For so many years, I carried so much extra weight on my shoulders as far as the opinions of others. And I realized how much of an influence people can actually have in one's life without them physically being there. It's the perception that if I put this out, what are they going to think of me? Is this going to change our friendship? Are they going to abandon me as a friend? Or if it's a family member? So there's just all these different stories. And ultimately, what I started to realize that the more I chose to step into my truth and actually act upon that truth, yes, the circle became smaller, so to speak. But the people that are in it now, there's not a single thing that I think I wouldn't be able to go to them with. Mm-hmm. If I have a challenge, I immediately go to any one of those people. And I know for a fact that they will always have my back. And that's that was another thing that I'm curious about through your journey. When all of this was happening, who was truly there for you? Oh, 100% my wife. My wife was always there for me through the good and bad. I mean, almost, I, I, and I say this with all, all love for her, but almost to a fault, I would say that, you know, through those years that I was drinking through that, all that, all of that, there were so many times where she should have left me and, 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 um, would have lived a better life. But again, it was just one of those things where she is such a wonderful, wonderful person, uh, human being with such a big heart of caring that she stayed with me. And, and now I spend all my time trying to pay that back <laughs> because it's, there's, uh, um, you know, that there's just, you know, there's so much, so much love there. And, you know, it's another, another place I, I struggle and I, I, I get anxious about is, is now is just, you know, am I, am I being a good husband or, 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 or those kinds of things, but she was always there for me, um, you know, through that, through that time, through sobriety, which was the biggest time. And, and um, uh, that, that, you know, cause I wasn't there a lot. I was at meetings every single day, taking care of what I needed to take care of to, to become a better person. And I think that was the important transformative mentality that I had at that point was that I couldn't be a good enough person for, for my family or anybody else, unless I did this, like, so I had to put sobriety first. And when I did that, that, that helped me move forward. And then of course she was there with me, uh, when I had this, you know, that when I had the crazy idea of like actually changing my fitness, my physical fitness, I, you know, I, I, she was the first person I brought the idea of doing an Ironman to, because it was just so, 
it, it was not who I was. And she immediately said, you know, you should do it. And I was like, oh crap, I got to do it then. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and why that out of the thousands of other events you could do? Yeah. So why the it, Ironman? So that, that was a seed that was planted long before when I was still in my anxiety and my drinking. It was probably maybe 15, 16 years ago when I was watching, I was watching television in the middle of a Saturday and on came this, this show where, you know, I saw the Hawaiian landscape and I was like, I I've always loved Hawaii. And I was just saw that. And it was like this, this Pavlovian response of, Oh my gosh, I got to watch this. <laughs> and then I heard the announcer come on, who is talking like this, you know, it was this amazing, like, you know, and, and then they started showing these athletes, like they were, they were, you know, swimming these amazing distances and, and, and biking and running. And the announcer said, started talking about the distance he said they're swimming 2.4 miles 112 mile bike and a 26 mile run and i was like holy crap how many days does it take to do that and then he said all in one day i'm like oh wow one day of that you know <laughs> and and the, the amazing part was was then i saw the people finishing the race and they they were like normal people they were people like they were people in their 50s some of them were you know one of them was in their 80s and they were crossing this finish line with a giant smile on their face. And I was, I could almost feel through the screen, the excitement and the joy and, and what they've overcome. And I was like, wow, that would be amazing to do that. I would love to do that. And just as immediate as, as quickly as that thought came into my mind, it was shut down by the self-doubt and by, you know, by that, that mindset that I had, which was limiting saying, you couldn't do that. You're drunk. You, you sit on the couch, you drink, you smoke cigarettes, you eat unhealthy. That's not you. You're not an athlete. You know, go back to doing what you do best, which is drinking and feeling sorry for yourself. Okay. So, so that, so I never thought about it again until, you know, maybe 10 years later when I was, uh, when I, when I had a year of sobriety and so I was laying in bed, I was injured with a shoulder surgery, but I had this year of sobriety. I had this year of transformation where I had done something that I had never thought that I could do before, which was get sober. And I did it with community. I did it through a series of steps. I did it with a framework and I did it with, uh, with discipline and consistency and obsessive focus. And it shifted my mindset into this one of things are now possible because I did this thing that I didn't think was possible. So I had a frame of reference for achievement and, and, I was always told in, in sobriety by people who had a lot more time than I did that I shouldn't make any major life changes until I had a year of sobriety. And what I heard instead of, of, of that was uh, make a major life change once you hit a year of sobriety. <laughs> that's, that's what I heard. Um, maybe that wasn't the right way to hear it, but that's what I heard. And, and so I was, I was actively in that mindset of thinking what I wanted to do to change my life. Did I want to travel? Did I want to go see the world? Did I want to do something? No, it's got to be big. But and then the idea of the Ironman came into my mind again. It just kind of popped back in there. Maybe it was the right environment for it. Maybe it was just serendipity, but it came in there. And I had those same feelings I had when I watched it previously. It was those moments of, of excitement of like, oh my gosh, that would be so amazing to do that. And then I had that, that transition moment where that fear came back, you know, that, that little tinge of fear, but instead of responding to that fear of, oh no, no, you can't do that. It was, well, what if I could, what if I pursued it? 
and that got the snowball rolling into like researching it and started digging in. And then, yeah, I had the, the, uh, uh conversation with my wife and, and then, yeah, I, I committed to it. So, wow. What are you doing with all this now? I know that you've written a book. I know you do quite a bit of speaking. And then for anyone else that's listening to this, what are some ways that people can connect with you? Yeah, so the best way would be through my website, which is adamhilltry.com. And I keep that updated on, on some of the things that are happening. But yeah, I have written a book. It's called Shifting Gears, and it's available now on Amazon. And uh, uh, you could find that on a link to that on my website. And uh, that's that's really one of the best ways to get a hold of me that you can you can sign up the contact information. I'll keep you updated on different speaking engagements and, and everything else. But uh, yeah, check it out. Can you explain the meaning briefly behind the name? I love it. Shifting gears. Shifting gears. So, so it is a play on words because obviously getting into Ironman involves mm-hmm. a lot of cycling and and shifting gears. And and what I found throughout you know my life was I was always kind of trying to spin into the easiest gear, mm-hmm. uh, into the simplest gear, so that you know, um, and and that I I ended up because I was in that easiest gear, I, I ended up spinning my wheels and and ultimately over the longer period of time, putting more effort in and, and doing more harm to myself. And, uh, by shifting gears into this new mentality, it's almost like, you know, just, and, and finding that new life, I, uh, I was able to, I was able to transcend the things in my life that were challenging to me, like anxiety, not get rid of them, but transcend them. And that's one of my favorite words now is because, it's, it's not an idea of overcoming it. I, I get a lot of, I get into a lot of interviews where people say, well, you overcame anxiety. I'm like, I didn't overcome it. I, and I, I, but I, I feel like I transcended it. I rose above it so that I can experience it in a different way and reframe that relationship with it. And so shifting gears in my life uh, allowed me to uh, reshape my relationship with myself. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I'm a huge believer in the same exact concept. For me, I think the definition of overcoming is not about eliminating, but it's about changing the relationship with it. And I and I also think that overcoming it it's more of a process; it's not an outcome. And that's that's the thing. When I started to really embrace it and understand it, everything in a way became simpler. So I was no longer having that internal battle and trying to figure out how do I get rid of anxiety, how do I get rid of depression, how do I get rid of stress, how do I get rid of this. Instead, how do I work with it? It's yeah. always going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a valuable, it's such an empowering way to think about it too. Because if, if we're always thinking about, I got to get rid of this anxiety, mm-hmm. I got to re- get rid of this depression. Well, where is that putting us into? It's putting into those states and it's putting us into states of shame because we're, we're constantly failing at it. I mean, we can't get rid of those things. And, and if, if instead we're reframing that relationship, we, we can do away with the shame and we can actually find that empowering part of it and realize that, yes, it's a, it, it can be a monster in our head, but it's a monster that we can, we can tame and learn to learn to have on our side. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's such a valuable concept. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google 
so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we look forward to having you next time.